Good morning, loved ones. It's a joy to see you today and uh, grateful. I'll just reiterate Josh's welcome to our guests. We're thankful that you're here. You'll see the details in the front page of that bulletin about the East Sunshine 101 and uh, guest lunch and so forth. So, so we hope that you'll stick around after our worship assembly and here today and be a part of those things as well. For our uh, East Sunshine family and maybe even some guests who were with us last week, this was, this was the uh, post-it note that was on the dash of my car throughout the week. I uh, had some on the car, had some on the bathroom mirror. What about you? Do you have those in, your, in those places where you saw them this week and prayed? It, it was, uh, this one in particular was Gospels at the top. Very good job on that, by the way. And then friends, just had friends, didn't know who I was praying for. But I drew a lot of uh, comfort this week in knowing that our God can see a request like that, knows who wrote it, and knows every single person that this individual had in mind when he or she wrote Friends. And uh, I took great confidence in that. It gave me uh, a lot to pray for as I imagined who might write something like that. And as I prayed for this person, for those friendships, uh, for these friends to know Jesus. Uh, and what a pleasure it was to be able to do that on, on several different accounts, some more specific than others. And... Um, I would encourage you just to hang on to those. Just keep praying. There's no reason for us to make that a one-week exercise. We'll just keep praying. And there will be other times that we'll probably re do something similar to that as we keep in front of us the side of our mission that is intercession. Uh, we're going to see in our text in just a little while uh, the continued importance of that. So we're in this series called Everyday Mission, Being Church Beyond Sunday. I want to remind, just give a little gospel reminder here, the beginning. In the book, The Shack, you may remember that from in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, around 2006 or 7, somewhere in there. The shack tells the story of a man named Mackenzie Phillips, Mac, as he's called in the story. And Mac has, uh, has experienced tragedy when he has gone camping with his family and his youngest daughter is abducted and then assumed murdered. They find evidence that she'd been murdered uh, in, a, in a small shack in the Colorado mountains, Oregon mountains, sorry. And um, that shack was the crime scene. It's where evidently the tragedy had taken place, and it had been years now since this had gone on. And um, approaching the anniversary of his daughter's death, Mac receives a, a note in the mailbox that says, join me at the shack this weekend, God. It was from God. He thought it was a dirty trick and even wondered if maybe 
maybe the murderer was out there. What's going on here? What's what this, the emotions of anger and rage and 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 complete grief just flooded him once again. But he decided that he was going to go to the shack anyway. He was going to explore this. He took his gun with him, packed it, put it in the back of his shirt, and decided to make his way to the shack. And as he saw the shack, as he's coming up on it, all of those emotions had come back once again, and he, he just was in a swirl, whirlwind of emotion as he climbs the steps to go up to the shack. And it says, as he tried to establish some inner mental balance, the anger that he had thought had so recently died inside him began to emerge. No longer concerned or caring about what to call God and energized by his ire, he walked up to the door Mac decided to bang loudly and see what happened, but just as he raised his fist to do so, the door flew open, and he was looking directly into the face of a large, beaming African-American woman. Instinctively, he jumped back, but he was too slow. With speed that belied her size, she crossed the distance between them and engulfed him in her arms, lifting him clear off his feet and spinning him around like a little child. And all the while she was shouting his name, Mackenzie Allen Phillips, with the ardor of someone seeing a long-lost and deeply loved relative. She finally put him back on earth and with her hands on his shoulders pushed him back as if to get a good look at him. Mac, look at you, she said, fairly exploded. Here you are, and so grown up. I have really been looking forward to seeing you face to face. It is so wonderful to have you here with us. My, 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 how do I love you? And with that, she wrapped herself around him again. Mac was speechless. The author's on to something with this scene here. He's on to something because he has a view of God that comes right out of the kind of picture that is given to us by Jesus, in particular in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus tells us the story of three stories, as a matter of fact, of the kind of God God is. Luke 15 begins with some religious leaders of the day watching Jesus eating another meal, yet again sitting down at the table of fellowship with some people who were sinners. And as they stand looking at him, they're making judgmental statements about him and the kind of company he keeps. And remember, in the first century, there was this perspective from the religious people in particular, and it had been, really had come from the Torah, this idea that, that you needed to eat certain foods, you needed to wash, you needed to have 
the proper kind of fellowship, but for them, taking the interpretation a step further, for, for many of the religious people, it was not simply, as we would say today, you are what you eat. They would say you are who you eat with. That was kind of part of the first century philosophy. And here's Jesus eating with sinners. What does that make Jesus? Well, in their mind, it made him a sinner, just like the rest of them. Of course, if you took the same philosophy and you looked at it from Jesus' eyes, and they're eating with Jesus, what does that make them? What kind of people does it make, the people who eat with Jesus, if you use the very same wisdom? Jesus believes that hanging out with people in that way is a good thing. And this story shows something that Jesus tells. First about a shepherd who's lost a sheep, one out of a hundred, and leaves the others. Before there's even a sense of security established for the others, he's going out to find the lost sheep. He says, God's like that shepherd. The, the song uh, by Corey Asbury called Reckless Love is based on that scripture. That it just seems amazing reckless but not in a harmful sort of way that he would go after that one sheep he cares that much but Jesus says God is also like a, a woman who has ten coins and she loses one of them and when she clears the house rearranges everything sweeps and finally finds the coin that's lost she's so happy she goes and spends one of the other coins perhaps to throw a party, to celebrate that she's found it. He says God's like that woman. And then finally, of course, God is like the father who has two sons. Both of them are rather far away from the father, just in different ways. One, because he wants to live on his own and do what he wants. And the other one, because he wants to live on his own and do what he wants in a different sort of way. The young one goes off and after he gets his inheritance, which is like saying, uh, I wish you were dead. Since you're not, could you go ahead and cash me out right now? Goes and spends everything. A while later, he comes back with nothing, begging, reciting his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I do not deserve to be called your son. Just make me like one of your servants. But the father sees him before he even gets there, and he runs out. He perhaps hikes up his robe and looks a bit humiliating, running out to meet his son, and he sees him, and he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. The son starts the speech. The father won't let him finish it, and he starts getting the preparations ready for the party for his son, who's been away and is now back. He doesn't even need to hear the details. He's just ready for the party. And this picture is the picture of a person who's been hurting, who's been seething in bitterness and in grief and in sadness and so much emotion, just completely overwhelmed and consumed by the loss of his daughter that he can barely even breathe in life. And he wonders what kind of God God is. And when he shows up at the shack that weekend, the picture here is a God who is welcoming him. Uh, like a woman in this case, in this book. 
and welcomes him in. And I think William Young knew that many people feel about God the way Mac perhaps did, that God likes punching buttons and making life miserable from his faraway place in heaven. And William Young is trying to give us a picture of a God who is delighted to see us show up and looks at us, looks at our growth, says our name, and then finally just reminds us, my, my, how I do love you. And I tell you that story because what Paul does in his letters, today we're going to be in his letter to the Colossian church. What Paul does in his letters is he starts off talking about gospel. He starts talking about the kind of God God is. This is who God is. This is what God has done. This is who you are in Christ if you receive what God has done for you in Christ. And then this is how you live. But he begins that way on purpose. He wants to start with the gospel. He wants to start with who God is, what he's done, and who we are in him. Before he ever gets to any kind of practices, before he ever gets to any kind of commands, he wants us to keep in mind the kind of God God is. I want to begin today as we look at some passages in Colossians chapter 4 that, talk, that are about the practices just to remind you of the kind of God God is. And Anne read from Colossians chapter 1. That portrait of Jesus was from Colossians chapter 1. It's the place where Paul is setting up the kind of God God is. And we are the people, if we have received Christ, who just as we've talked about over the last several weeks, we are the people who represent God to the world. We are salt we're light. Remember as salt that we make the difference by making contact. Salt is not something that, that can make a difference by staying in the salt shaker. It has to get out and it has to make contact with the food, with the wound, in order to do what salt does. So make contact, Jesus says. Make contact with this world. And light radiates, it shines, it calls attention to the things that are around it. Shine your light, Jesus says. And for us, we must be deeply embedded in this very God who loves us. I believe Young's portrait of Papa, as he calls the father in this book, The Shack, is right on as a God who welcomes and picks us up, doesn't need to hear any speech. He just picks us up and he embraces us and he's ready. Now, there's a lot of transformation that happens in the rest of the book. Some deep and hard and personal things. A lot that has to be sacrificed and surrendered on Mac's part as he gets to live in his place as God's person. But it begins with God and the kind of God God is. And this is what Paul does in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, all, all the way to verse 5 in chapter 2, is he reminds us of this God. He reminds us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, this reconciliation that he's made possible, the reconciliation we talked about last week, and how he's made that possible through his death, through his resurrection. 
Let's read, starting in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. A very short passage here. Because you are who you are in Christ, Paul moves in chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 6. This whole section goes from, if, if you think about the first part of his letter, and when he talks about the kind of God God is, what God has done, who we are in Christ, we could think of that in a, in a vertical sense, or a theological sense, or a gospel sense, whichever one you'd prefer there. It's gospel. It's the vertical aspect of the letter. He moves then into the first part of chapter 2, and then leading into the first, or the last part of chapter 2, leading into the first part of chapter 3, he looks at the transformational side of this. Because we are in Christ, this is what God does to the old self, and this is what God produces in the new self. You're a completely different kind of person when you're in Christ. And then he moves from the transformational into the social. It, because we are this kind of person in Christ, it changes all the kinds of relationships that we have. And he specifically talks about the relationships that husbands and wives have, that parents have with their children, that, that we have in the marketplace, slaves and, and, and masters in this case. So it goes from vertical to transformational to social. And then finally, here in chapter 4, to the missional part of that life. Because when we're in Christ, we don't just enjoy the vertical, singing the praise and, and giving thanks to God. And, it, and it's not just about the transformation on the inside in me, me being able to, to live with me, to love me. It, it goes into the social realm, but it doesn't stop at the social realm either. It doesn't just stop with the gathering. It doesn't just stop with these relationships in our family and in our church family. It goes outside. And to be people who are in Christ, all of those things are happening to us. They're all a part of this new identity in Christ. And this is what Paul says. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Just a few verses here but so full, so full for this missional life that God has given us. Let's think about these verses a little bit together. Starting in verse 2 once again, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Um, this word, this is exactly what is talked about in the beginning of Acts chapter 2 when it says the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves to it. They continued in it steadfastly. They didn't miss it. They were on top of it. This had become their new way of life. Devotion to prayer. And in this missional sense, prayer is not just a matter of the vertical relationship, and it's not just a matter of the inner transformation that we need. 
It's not just something we do in our social settings as a family or as a church family. Prayer has the missional side of it as well. Devote yourselves to prayer. This is simply one way for us to be devoted to prayer for each other, for the breakthroughs that we want to see happen in life. When we write down names of of people, or, or don't even write their names, we write situations, we write relationships, and we write those things down, and then we say, God needs break, we need breakthrough here into these situations, these places, these people. We need for them to know that, that God is this Papa who loves them so completely that he will change their lives radically. And so we devote ourselves to prayer. And then he says being watchful and thankful. The word watchful there is, is like he's saying stay awake. Keep alert. Keep your eyes open. And in this context, it seems to me that that with prayer and then watchfulness coming right after it, and then what's the last thing? Thankfulness. Pray, watch, give thanks. It seems like all of that goes together. So what if he means this? What if he means pray and now be on the lookout, be watching for those answers to prayer? And when you see them, give thanks. Pray, expecting God to work. So keep your eyes wide open. In just a moment, he's going to talk about opening a door for the message. Maybe he's talking about keep your eyes open for that door that God has cracked. Keep your eyes open in prayer. Stay prayerful. Watch for those prayers to be answered by God. And when you see them, give thanks. Keep your eyes open, stay alert, and even when you haven't yet seen the answer that you're praying for, give God thanks anyway. Pray in all circumstances, he would tell the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5. Be thankful. Verse 3, he says, while you're at it, while you're in this life of prayer, pray for us too. Us meaning uh, Paul as the apostle and his company, these others that he travels with. Uh, he traveled with Timothy. He traveled with, with Titus and Silas and these different ones. He's got these others that he travels with, Barnabas in the early days. And so Paul and his companions, as they go from city to city, proclaiming the gospel, perhaps going from one city to the next, strengthening those, uh, those disciples who are there, those small churches those young churches, and strengthening them, encouraging them. But whatever it is, wherever he goes, he and his companions are proclaiming the gospel. They are telling the world, announcing the good news, announcing the good news that, hey, God has broken in in Jesus Christ, and things have changed. In fact, everything has changed because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Let us tell you a little bit about it. And what we know from Paul is that he goes from city to city. The first places he goes are where? He goes to gathering places, and the first gathering place is the synagogue. He's going to go to the people of God, the Jews, first. He's going to go to where they're gathered, and he's going to talk and try to convince them about Jesus being the Messiah, the one that had been promised. And then he goes from there, and he'll go to the various marketplaces, and he gets involved in people who do not yet know 
the message that the Jews themselves should have known from the Old Covenant Scriptures, from the Torah. And so he makes himself available, and he goes and he teaches. And then he says, pray that God may open a door for our message. Paul believes that God is active in the world among those who have not yet believed, among those who have not yet heard that God is this God of love and holiness and justice and mercy and grace. They haven't heard the kind of God God is. And he says that God cares about those people and that God is ready to open doors. Pray that God would open doors. You know, to pray that God would open doors is not to pray something that is against the will of God. We don't know timing on people. We don't know timing in situations. But when we remember the kind of God God is, we know that we're not praying to someone that we have to twist his arm. We have to, we have to try to convince him, please love these people. He's already demonstrated his great love. He's already demonstrated how far he will go to love the world. He's already demonstrated how far he will go to give the world hope and new life by raising Jesus from the dead. So this God is ready. And he says, pray that he will open a door for our message. And that I may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And then proclaim it, he says in verse 4, clearly. In other words, I need help just un, un, unveiling this, this mystery. It, what he says here is, is to reveal it, just to make it known. So it's like it's, it's a portrait that's covered in a cloth, and he's taking the cloth off and going, ta-da, here's Jesus, here's the kind of God God is. And that's the word that he uses here. Pray that I would do that well. Pray that I would show this world the kind of God he is and what he's done for us in Christ. And then verse 5, he says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Those phrases here, be wise. Wisdom is actually one of the themes of this letter, the letter to the Colossians. It's one of the themes because in this setting, uh, Colossae was... um, a place where there were a variety of philosophical hotbeds. Uh, philosophy, just like in, in uh, Athens, people liked to gather and talk about the latest ideas. Colossae was another one of those places. And what's happening in the Colossian church is there's a, there is a battle going on, there's a competition going on, as all these different philosophies and ideas and attitudes and perspectives that are around them in their culture, sound familiar? are competing with Christ and the philosophy, the the theology, the gospel that we believe as people of Christ. And so people are weighing these different philosophies, and they're weighing Christ. And he has already said back in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, as he gets toward the end of his vertical gospel uh, message, and he says, the revelation of God is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
that'd be a life changer for us if we really believed that and, and, and lived like we believed that. that. That everything that was wise, everything that was good, everything that was true was really captured in Jesus. That there really is nothing better, nothing wiser, nothing truer than Jesus himself. And living as if that we really believed that, if it were true, that would, that would, change, that would change us. That would change the people that were around. And Paul is calling us to be wise in light of Christ who is wisdom personified. This Christ who lives in you, the hope of glory, he says back in chapters 1 and 2, that Christ is the one who helps you live wise because he's given you a new life. He's given you his life. And so now live in that wisdom. And wisdom is putting into practice. It goes beyond just factual knowledge, right? We know the difference here. It's not just facts. It's not just having the right information. It's putting into practice what we know to be true and good. It's putting it into practice. It's knowing that washing your hands is a good idea when there's a virus spreading and washing your hands. You can know it, but not necessarily practice it. How many of you gave fist bumps today? I saw it. I went up to one person, I was doing this, and they went, just like this. The elbow right there. Wisdom is putting into practice what we know to be true and good. And Paul is so concerned throughout the letters. It's, it's certainly you see it in, in the life of Jesus. You see it in, in the book of Acts as well. Paul doesn't want the lifestyle and the attitudes of, of his followers to give opportunity for a negative view of Jesus. He doesn't want the way that we live before outsiders. Outsiders in this case are those people who have not yet believed. They're skeptics, but they've not yet put their faith in Christ. And he doesn't want those who believe in Christ and live for Christ and wear the name of Christ to live in a way that pushes people further away from Christ, that would call into question our own lives and therefore the one that we claim as Lord. Oh, he's your boss? I don't think I want any of that. Now, it's one thing if they reject us because of the good that we do. Peter even talks about this in his letter when he talks about um, uh, slaves being obedient, not being rebellious. So, employees, if you've got a boss, obey the boss. Live differently. And then he says, make the most of every opportunity. These are just, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Because he recognizes the Christians in Colossae, we ourselves are a minority. Um, so one of my friends, uh, I guess I don't know how long it's been now. It was a Sunday afternoon when, uh, several weeks ago, when the news about Kobe Bryant and his daughter uh, and the helicopter crash in California. And... Um, that hit the sports world, obviously, very difficult. It, it was talked about almost for a month. Uh, it's been quite a month, but weeks until even up to the, the memorial service that was held recently. I had a friend at the gym who, uh, a few years older than me, and 
is a sports fanatic. Every conversation seems is, is around sports, and he was, we were talking, and um, he, brought, he brought up the helicopter crash. This was the day or maybe two days later after the crash, so it was still fresh on people's minds. And he said, you know, I, I keep reading these different articles, and, and this one article talks, goes back all the way to 2003 and the sexual assault case that, was, that had been levied on, on Kobe that he eventually made a pub public apology about and um, in a way ad ad admitting some guilt there. And so he was going back to that. And what about, what about that in his life 17 years ago? What about that episode? What about the woman who was there? And I said, you know, this is tough. And he, he, he then said something. He said, I'm having trouble sorting this out. And I'd like to have a spiritual perspective. This is not a church-going person. But I'd like to have a spiritual perspective of this. What do you think? Make the most of every opportunity. Here's one of those conversations. So I said, well, I remember hearing about that. I was just coming back into in, in, I was still in England at the time just coming back into the country when that broke so I said I didn't get to see a lot of the headlines around that but I know that in recent years there was a different trajectory it seems like even after he retired from basketball he was headed kind of a different direction and there was a lot of respect being you know given to him And I wonder if maybe he looks back at that and there really haven't been any other things that we've heard about since then and his direction was very different, seemed to be very devoted to his family. We don't know. He's a public person, so we don't see what happens behind the scenes. But I'd like to think that the sins and mistakes of my past have been forgiven. I'd like to think that this, this God that I believe in loves to give people second and third and fourth. He loves to give us chance after chance. He loves to help us go a different direction in life. And it's not to excuse sins of the past. But we do have a God that likes to put us going into a different direction I said, you know, Jesus tells a story about a woman who was caught in sin and everybody wants to stone her and Jesus asks a question. Okay, so the ones of you who haven't sinned, go ahead and start throwing the stones. It was a paraphrase, obviously. And I said, you know, no one could throw any stones and so one by one they begin to walk away. And I said, one of the things that I believe about God is that he loves to show mercy. In fact, one of the prophets in the Bible says that. He delights to show mercy to people. And so I believe he's the kind of God who will show mercy to the woman who, for all I know, may still have a lot of hurts and damage from that incident 17 years ago. But I also believe he wanted to show mercy 
to Kobe. Whether Kobe believed, I don't know. But all I can do is talk about the kind of God that I believe God is. The God who loves to make our lives different and send us a different direction. Later on, we had a follow-up conversation, and he said, I just want you to know that I've continued to think about the things that you said that first day and then this other conversation. He said, it's really helped me a lot. Now, in that conversation, my friend did not say, what do I need to do to be saved? I don't know what's going to happen with those conversations, but what I know is there was an opportunity here, and in the opportunity, it's an opportunity for me to speak what I believe about God. I can't give a full theological treatise, but I've had enough conversations with my friend, and I know what he's asking in this moment. I know the kinds of things that he gets uh, concerned with, and I wanted to be able to just say something about the kind of God God is to him. And we talked about the, the truth of sin and failure. We talked about justice that is needed. But it gave a great opportunity to talk about the cross that brings both of those together, justice and mercy. And so without even knowing it, perhaps on his side of things, he heard the gospel in a couple of our conversations. He heard about this God. Paul says in Corinthians, when he's, when he's talking about how people view him and Apollos and Peter, he says, you know, we're servants. One of us waters, and another, plant, another one plants, another waters, and God gives the growth. And I don't know what those conversations are, but it was an opportunity for me to just talk about what I believe about God. Make the most of every opportunity. Then finally, verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. I believe these verses 5 and 6 go together. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why do you believe what you believe? Hey, I just want a spiritual perspective. Could you give me a spiritual perspective on this? I'm needing some help sorting some things out. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, tells the story about her husband, Kent, who is pastor of First Reformed Presbyterian Church in Durham, North Carolina. And she and her husband had gone on one Thursday evening in May of 2014 to speak at another church on the topic, Loving the Stranger. And they go on this Thursday night, and they speak, and they have a great time, and they come back to their house and they realize when they walk in something's not right their golden retriever is is hunkered down in a corner of the kitchen and now they look around and they see things are thrown everywhere there's a window that's been busted out and they realize they've been burglarized their home has been burglarized their dog had been injured and was just terrified they go through the house make just seeing what's going on they're caring for the dog 
they, she goes into her bedroom and everything has been ransacked and just torn up. All of her jewelry is gone, including her engagement ring that her husband Kent had given her. It had been in his family for five generations. She said, that morning I had contemplated putting it on. I usually don't wear it. I contemplated putting it on, and that was the last time I'll ever think about it. All of her jewelry, everything of value gone from their house, and the feeling of being violated was so strong among them. But a couple of days after they were able to kind of get things in place, they decided to host a party for the coming Sunday. So this happens on a Thursday. By Friday evening, they're writing an email and posting on the Nextdoor app that they're going to host a party this coming Sunday afternoon at 3 in their yard. So they started the preparations, they sent the message, and then after the message was sent, realized, oh, that Sunday's Mother's Day. And they said, well, oh well, we've already sent it. We're going to have a party on Mother's Day afternoon. And they invited their neighbors, bunches of them, and they invited their church family. And evidently a yard full of people shows up for the party. But Rosaria said he want, that Kent wanted to have some church family there and he wanted the neighbors there. He says because his strategy is this, a house filled with God's people who can help our neighbors see the hand of God in everyday details of life, including the providence of being robbed. If we can just get people together and there are enough people who can just talk about the hand of God in the everyday details of life. And then she writes this about the party. It was a joy-filled time with hot dogs and kids and water guns and meeting new and old friends. Twenty-one of our neighbors showed up and most of our church family as well. And when our unbelieving and skeptical neighbors asked how we were holding up, we were able to share the gospel with a new legitimacy. Because where God is in your loss matters more to a doubting and cynical world than where God is in your plenty. Did you hear that? Let me just say it again. Where God is in your loss matters more to a doubting and cynical world than where God is in your plenty. Because a doubting and cynical, skeptical world that has found numerous reasons not to believe, many of them are, are going to come to believe, perhaps most, not from a well-reasoned, rational study going point by doctrinal point and comparing it to their favorite philosophy. It's most likely going to come in relationships with people who can have a conversation a people who are good at listening, a people who will take time to listen, make the most of every opportunity to listen, and then to speak with grace, seasoned with salt, giving an answer that includes something of the gospel of God. In a doubting, cynical, skeptical world, will look at the people who wear the name Christ and watch what kind of witness do these people have.
our practices and the, the soul training practice that I want to encourage you to do this week is to go into this passage and just read these verses each day preferably as you begin your day read Colossians 4 2 to 6 and let those words soak in and ask this God of the gospel this father of Jesus Christ who's made it possible for you to have new life to open a door for his message through your life and that you'd be ready to make the most of every opportunity he gives you to have conversations that involve listening that involve gentleness that involve respect and allow you to speak the grace of God into their lives would you stand with me please We want to give opportunity anytime for people who've not yet responded to this good news, this gospel. Paul's writing to a church. He's writing to people who've responded. They've responded in faith. They've responded in baptism. They've given their lives to Jesus. And if you want to know more about that, perhaps you're one of our guests. Perhaps you have been skeptical. Perhaps you have been cynical. And you're just here today to check things out. And we're so glad that you're here. We keep learning I often say I'm one learner telling other learners what he's learning. I think most of us would say the same thing. We're still learning. And so if you're among us today and you feel like a novice, sometimes we do too. And we'd love to be able to talk with you, to listen to your questions and concerns, and to walk with you through your questions in life. If you're of the people of God and you want to be encouraged in your journey, to make the most of every opportunity to have a wise life and a gracious witness. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to go to our prayer teams and have prayer. Let's respond as we sing about this great Christ, this great Jesus of ours.